I think as we move forward and we get access to more and more data, I'm an advocate for small data. There's so many really meaningful data sets you already own that you don't use that layering on larger, more advanced data sets in many cases is not going to help you unlock better decisions. So I, my advice to people is like, look for the most important job that nobody wants to do and make it your own. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. If you're in marketing, I'm sure that you've had to, at one point or another, go into Google Analytics and try to decrypt what these numbers are telling you. But it's not always as cut and dry as we might hope. And it can get super frustrating when there's just no trend in sight. But fear not, because my next guest has some great news for you. You don't need to be a math whiz to make data work for you. All you need to do is learn how to ask better questions and pay attention to the small data. He's a journalistic storyteller turned data wrangler. Previously, he sat as the chief audience officer of Billboard Media Group, where he oversaw over 40 million monthly unique visitors across their various media assets. And you thought your company's analytics were complicated. He's now sharing that knowledge as the analytics advisor on Team Gary V. Joining me live today, the one, the only, Jim Thompson. I really appreciate you taking the time. And you know, I've spoken a few times online and mostly revolving around data because that's your kind of bread and butter right now as the analytics advisor to Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. It's, it's great to connect. I mean, my, you know, my connection with data is maybe a little different than some people's in that, I mean, I think of myself more as like a data storyteller because my DNA is really more of a journalist. But over the years, I've slid more and more into data and analysis. And so now I think I'm more of a hybrid. You started in journalism. How did you get involved with journalism and media? Was that something you wanted to do from a young age? Yeah, yeah I think I was, always, I was always inclined in that. It's what I went to school for. It's what I started. Newspaper, magazine, broadcast television, news, and you know, eventually digital around 2000. So, but always, uh, almost always in a media capacity. And you, from the early stage, started your career doing the, the digital side of media, even though you're working at a radio and television place, you were part of the digital team. How did you start figuring out what digital strategies were? <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, back then, I mean, it, being on digital wasn't really the, the cool, sexy thing to do. Uh, in some cases, yeah, it was like the island of misfit toys. But yeah, I think being in traditional media organizations as the digital arm always kind of felt like you were, you know, selling ice to the Eskimos. But I think as it become as it became more evident that this digital thing was was really the future, it spawned a number of different junctures that that I, that I didn't expect. So it was it was definitely the right path. But at the time, it felt it felt more like being misunderstood for a long period of time. What helped you persevere as jumping into something that 
you weren't sure was going to pan out or being kind of ahead of the curve on it? I think it was just really the, the interest in learning. Any, any opportunity, I had to be in a position where I had the ability to learn new content, new techniques, new processes, meet new people. There was always an opportunity to learn. And I think that was what kept me going. I didn't know exactly where it was going, but I knew I was gaining more knowledge. And so that seemed like a good thing to follow. One, one thing I found in your bio that was interesting was you won Best Website Award by the Radio and Television Digital News Association in 2006. <laughs> so I want to know what that website looked like that was the best website in radio and television in 2006. <laughs> that, was at, that was at the Houston, the CBS affiliate in Houston, and it was the RTNDA Edward our Murrow Award. It's a regional award. So there's a national award where that's actually something really significant. It, it was, it's a nice little thing, but it was really just, we were the, you know, considered the, the best local media news property in, in Houston. So in the Houston area, but it's not something I don't put screenshots of that homepage <laughs> or anywhere. So it was, it was nice at the time. I can imagine that at that point, the fact was there video on this website yet? Was that even a thing yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like we were a television. It was the TV, CBS affiliate in Houston, so it was there was very video driven. But it's amazing, like how at that time the thought was everything needed to be converted into video, whether it was a baseball box score or something totally ridiculous. But the fact that we were a TV station, we felt like everything had to be in video. That's what we were. So now, you know, I think it was a good lesson to understand that as new things developed, video, mobile, social, all of these things are just tools and techniques to communicate. And so when you start to fixate, on, look, the, the secret here is just to create more of X. More of X doesn't really have any value. It's like how you use it and what value it brings to the people you're reaching. Uh, so context is always king. You mentioned a word there called, you're calling it a digital property. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how media companies value digital assets and what metrics they would measure to, to see if this is something that is worth their investment? I think the two primary approaches were either they would take a digital media property and separate it and say, we wanted to keep it separate from the legacy media property so that it can grow and evolve as it needs to evolve without and without being concerned about how it impacts the legacy, you know, whether that's a newspaper or a TV station or a magazine. And then there's, there's the alternate, which is no, those two, those two need to be combined together. They need to work hand in hand. And so I've actually been with media properties that put them together, pull them apart, and then put them back together again, just because it has pluses and minuses for both approaches. But I think digital media properties now digital is really is kind of an outdated thought. It's just media. It's just how we communicate, which is more along the lines of how it should be. But it's not about the format. It's about the content. No question. And things are going to continue to progress even faster. And it's a matter of making sure that you're speaking the relevant messaging to the right people. And the tools just keep making that frictionless to get that message to people. Yeah. The, the, the more you can get out of the middle, like media means to be in the middle. And so as we get better and better of stepping out of being in between people and the message, uh, we get more effective as communicators. Oh, that's cool. So being face-to-face, -face, telling a story to someone, 
that you can actually see is the closest you can get. And then the further you get away, there's media in the way. Right now we're figuring out how technology is replicating that in-person experience as much as possible. Yeah. And, and in many cases, not even replicating, but just allowing it to happen. Like mm-hmm. when you, the person that the thing happened to telling the story of what it, what it was like, you, you have nobody in between. So the ability for one-to-one peer-to-peer communication, there's less of a need for that middleman, uh, the traditional media person to gather information and then reshare it because that can happen on its own without that person in between. So the role of that person is changing significantly to be more of a a curator or a guide or less of a information gatherer as it was five, 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, you started carving yourself out as an analytics and, and growth and audience strategist. What was your decision there to pursue something a little bit more data-driven despite not having a mathematical background of in, in that space? It's interesting. It's, it's a piece of advice that I, I give to the, some of the younger folks that I come across is I was with Fox Interactive in, you know, based in New York and running a content team and one of, the, one of the systems that didn't really have any expertise or any ownership was, there was actually two systems. One was the ad serving system, which was DFP, and the other was Omniture, which was the analytics system. And I knew I didn't want to, didn't want to learn ad serving. So I said, well, look, I'll, I'll, figure, out, I'll figure out Omniture. I can, I, I can get the gist of how this works. And that was a really smart move. So I my advice to people is like, look for the most important job that nobody wants to do and make it your own. That's, that is good advice because things will keep moving. But if you become a specialist in something, you can become known as the, the go-to person in that, that field. I wish I had done it with that much foresight, but yeah, <laughs> it turned out that way. But at the time I was like, well, I, I, think, I, can, I think I can handle this. But this, the more I got into it, the more I realized it was really a really powerful tool to tell better stories. Mm-hmm. And it helped you move all the way up as chief audience officer at Billboard uh, and Hollywood Reporter Media Group. What was that kind of transition like to, to go from, sure, I'll, I guess I'll do that data thing to all of a sudden in the last five, six years, data becoming the go-to topic when it comes to any type of media? So I think what... What traditionally happened was I would, in that role, I was there about five or six years, that role started as an analytics and audience development role. And I think as it started, I would present information that was useful and helpful to people. And then I would provide information that was tactical and suggested plans of actions that people could take. And, And then it was around, hey, maybe you should own some of these some of these action plans that you're developing to the point where why don't you actually own the people that are creating the content as well as the action plan and the data behind it that's supporting it. Because after a while, people would be shocked when I would say, you know, I actually am a journalist. I know they're like, oh, you're the data guy. I'm like, well, yeah, I am, but not really. I'm probably more of a journalist than a data guy, but, but that's fine. You can consider me either one of those. It was a really exciting opportunity to both be able to plan and ideate audience development and then to be able to execute them and, and own them all the way through. And it was, you know, really powerful. Like we delivered, you know, five consecutive years of 
of record audience growth. And it's a very effective means when you can combine the thoughtful care and creativity of a, a journalist or a media creator with the, with the insightful strategic balance of, of a data analyst. That's a really, that's a really great combination of things. And I think that relates a lot to an idea that you and I have discussed before, where you're measuring the macro, so the big picture, and then as well as the micro. So in this case, having the data to show what topics people respond to, but then having the storytelling ability and the interest to go down to the micro and say, okay, if I was an individual who had interest in this topic, what kind of story would I want to read or consume? Can you expand a little bit more on how you think about measuring that micro and macro? Sure. I think the, the, way I, the way I think through that question is really around what is, what is the data a proxy for? So what does it represent? And so when you get too, a little too caught up in the Excel charts and, and trying to break down algorithms to understand how things are operating, you forget that these numbers represent people. And when you start to remember like, wait, wait, why is this important? Why does this particular measurement mean anything? And so it's, oh, because it's indicating what people uh, came here to do and then stopped doing and then started doing something else. So it, it really is a, it's a proxy for us watching and engaging the people that we're trying to serve or communicate with. So I think a lot of times we, we tend to get lost in in the data and forget like why it's important. Sometimes we walk right past the answer in a search for more data when we actually had, we actually had the answer there that would allow us to make a better decision. And instead for, you know, for the forego the decision so that I could capture more data and maybe get to a more perfect decision. So I think as we move forward and we get access to more and more data, I'm an advocate for small data as there's, there's so many really meaningful data sets you already own that you don't use that layering on larger, more advanced data sets in many cases is not going to help you unlock better decisions. Can you give an example of a data set that a, a person who doesn't think of themselves in the media business has access to that we might not use? Like, are you talking about the analytics on Instagram and LinkedIn? Yeah, those are even moderately advanced data sets that people generally have access to. I think there's even simpler data sets, which is around asking questions. If you are trying to decide what content to create and you haven't surveyed your audience in smart, thoughtful ways around what it is they care about, what is it they're interested in? What are they struggling with? What are they excited about? These are simple ways for you to start to shape your strategy of how can I serve that group? But we try like, oh, no, no, the perfect answer is in Google Analytics. The perfect answer is there if I can just, you know, port a thousand stories into, you know, into a data analysis and it'll spit out exactly what I can do. And I've yet to see it. I've yet to see a data, uh, a data tool supply a content strategy. You need someone that understands the big picture around what to do with it for it to be meaningful and to build a plan that you can execute. One of the, one of the things that we did at Billboard was we were redesigning the Hot 100, which was 
uh, which is you know the primary media asset for the property. It's the the chart that tracks the top 100 songs in the country for the week. And so when we went to redesign that, it was a very precious piece of real estate. And so as the designers came back with the mock, say, hey, this one's this is almost ready to go. We're ready to launch. And I was like, well, hold on, let's let's go through. What is the what's the purpose of this redesign? Like why? why do we make these changes? And I'm like, well, we're trying to, we're trying to elevate video. We're trying to make video more prominent. I'm like, okay, do we know that that's what the users want? And they're like, well, we know that's what we want. Like, all right, well, I understand what we want, but what do the, what do the users want? And so, so we paused and we just did some simple surveying and saying, Avinash Kaushik is one of the leaders in, in the analytics space that I follow. And he has some really smart thoughts around like four simple questions that you should ask every visitor to your to your property and ask them the first one is really the purpose of visit like why did you come here today and so that's really what we based the first survey on was like what what did you come here today for what was what were you trying to accomplish and it was then that we learned that we had two very different sets of audiences coming we had an audience that came tuesday and wednesday right when the chart updated which was primarily industry people who were looking to understand where their artists were ranked 17, 14, 2, 1, 9. And they cared very much about the specific rankings. Now, there was also a second audience that really started to pick up around Saturday and Sunday. And that was more of a consumer audience that didn't really care whether Justin Bieber was ranked 7 or 9 or, or, or 22. What they cared about was identifying music that, they weren't aware of that was becoming more popular. So one was interested in the measurement and the ranking of artists. The other was interested in a discovery mechanism for them to uncover new music that would allow them to sample it and be the cool person at the party that said, Oh, haven't you heard of, haven't you heard of this artist? So that's something that we, we didn't initially look at. We're like, we're just gonna put video real prominent on the Hot 100, but that's not what people asked for. That's not what people wanted. And so what we did was we created a video product that addressed that consumer need of trying to understand not who was number one, because they already knew that, that person, that the artist had been number one for several weeks. Video is something that people have been talking about for the last couple of years as the content. But how do you see different pe- like types of media. So for the, this interview example, if it was on Instagram, it would have the, the writing underneath because people aren't gonna listen to it at full volume on the subway. How are you differentiating or thinking about different types of media? I, I think the, the two things you wanna look at are the audience that you're reaching, right? And so what, what, is, the, what is the interest and, and needs of the audience that you're reaching? And what, what device, what platform are you best equipped to reach them on? So in a lot of cases, video gets a lot of the attention because it's, it's the most engaging means. But, but you look at the popularity of podcasting in the last couple of years, it's, it, like it, had, it had a peak and then it kind of died away. And now it's kind of resurged as audio technology, like as wireless earbuds, have come into play now you rarely see people walking out without without earbuds video experience when someone has free time does is not that helpful like when i have free time i'm moving i'm commuting i am transitioning 
that's when I have free time that I'm not spending, that I could spend with you, but that needs to be in a format that I can access. So video doesn't really help me. And so that's why you gotta be thinking about what your audience needs. You gotta be thinking about what platform they're going to be consuming you and you know what is their context as they're consuming that, that information. So it's almost more like there's active consumption and passive consumption. So if you're sitting there able to put your eyes and ears to the screen, that's different than I'm running through the grocery store, but I still want to be listening to something cool. Exactly. I think people are realizing where they've been listening to music, they're starting to substitute in other forms of information that they value. That audio experience is going to become more sophisticated, more impactful, and more useful in a lot of, in a lot of cases, more useful than video. Mm-hmm. So if you are a professional individual and you are seeing the opportunity to present yourself online and you want, and you're, and you're understanding that content is the way to do that, what kind of questions should you be asking yourself on what platforms you should be doing and what kind of content you should be doing? I think the, the first question is, what do I have of value to offer? More than likely, that's going to be something that you're passionate about. So, you know, I could share information about cooking, but I don't cook that much. Could I, could I gather a bunch of information to share with you about cooking? Sure, but I'm not passionate about it. I don't have any particular unique insight on it. So I think the first step is to identify what it is that you are really passionate about. If you are into science fiction movies from the 70s, there's an audience out there that, are, that is into science fiction movies from the 70s. And your ability to build an audience around that particular topic is very real and very possible nowadays, whereas it wouldn't have been 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So ability to kind of identify that question number one is really the most important thing that you'll, that you'll consider. And that passion is required because you need to be pursuing it for a number of years because it takes time to build a, a position online or as a figure in any topic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm thrilled to use the word years because that's, that's the, the, time, the time frame you should be thinking. Because if you're going to do something for two years or three years or four years without any, any monetization or any real recognition, Boy, it better be something that you enjoy. Like you, you better be doing it because you enjoy doing it. And the, the act of creating that is something that is meaningful to you. Because if you're just waiting for, I'm just waiting for the right viral video that's going to put me on Ellen and, and launch my career as an expert in XYZ, you're not going to be able to stay with it long enough. You're, you're going to eventually burn out because you're doing something as a task. You're not doing something as a, as a mission or a passion. One piece of pushback I've gotten though, as I, as I talk to people at the beginning of their careers, like I am, I'm not good at anything yet. Cause I just started and I don't know what I want to be passionate about in the future. I'm just trying to kind of keep my options open. How do you put your stake in the ground? If you're unsure, that's what you want to pursue for 10 years. If you've never done anything for 10 years, period. Yeah. I mean, the answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows what they want to do for 10 years. All they, all they know is what they want to do right now. So, and that question is the most common question. You think you're unique because you don't know exactly what it is you want to do or which direction you want to go. When the fact of the matter is that 
that is the same question that everybody has. Do you know what you want to pursue that's going to be, that, that's going to have staying power for four or five years? No, you're not. All you have to know is what it is you want to try. What are you passionate enough to start? And, and if it doesn't work, then you start something else. And that's how you would find something that is long-term by trying and, and failing at different things. But to keep waiting for, well, I'm just waiting to find myself or the thing that I'm really going to be special at, you get special at it by doing it. You just have to start. And if it doesn't work, then you switch. You move to something else. But you can't be afraid to start something and not finish it. So now your, your primary role is uh, analytics advisor to Gary Vaynerchuk. He's only come into my field of vision in the last two years. And for a while, I was hesitant to engage because his delivery style kind of shook me. I didn't really, I didn't enjoy the, the loudness and I kind of cringed at it for, for a long time. And I purposely didn't look at it, but it was in my face, which shows <laughs> that even though I wasn't following him, he was still getting in my sphere. So that's, that's the first thing showing that it's effective. But then once you start listening to his messaging, you realize that it's, it's very consistent and you, the delivery method kind of grows on you. And he has other things that aren't as loud, but that's the messaging he has is just is keep going, keep going, keep going. So what drew you to wanting to work with him? Because his technique is very different than the, the traditional media where he records everything, shows you the whole process, whereas a lot of traditional media is super glossy and tied up with a nice bow and a lot of production goes into it. So what, what made you want to switch over and see what the other side was working on? Well, I'd followed Gary probably for about the last three years or so. The, our, my, my trainer had kind of turned me on, like, you got to hear this guy, this guy, Gary, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. And he's a, he's a Jersey guy. So I live, in, I live in New Jersey. He's like, he's a Jersey guy. He's right, he's right from around this area. And I'm like, okay, I'll check him out. And, and I was, same as you, I was struck by, wow, this, <laughs> this guy's really in your face. And then as I listened more and more to him, I realized that, it's that contrast of someone who is so brash and honest and, and adamant about his message married with this, this alpha male presentation with this underlying message of kindness and empathy, which is very foreign to you know, his primary demo, which is a young male audience. And so it was this really unique combination that I thought like, wow, that's, that's such a, a a strange contrast and it works. And then I started listening more and more and I started realizing that his narratives are very accessible. And I think that's what, what drew me to, to following him and, and the message and the ability to impact people's lives and really help them move forward, just move forward in whatever it is they're trying to accomplish, you know, primarily entrepreneurship, but other, other, parts of your mindset and, and, uh, and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because he is owns, runs a company, but has distinguished himself as an individual that's doing the action that has led to his company, but his fans aren't necessarily going to be giving him any revenue, right? Because he's still a media, <laughs> a, the marketing company, right? So how does, how does right. that work? How does that exposure generate revenue from the actual customers? Well, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before, that if, if you're pursuing something you're passionate about and you're willing to do it for three, four, five years 
without any financial benefit, then you have the opportunity to build a name and an audience for yourself that most people won't do. Most people can't do. And I think Gary, Gary did that. He was founded as a, as a wine expert. So he, you know, he worked and built his uh, parents' liquor store into a, into a significant multi-million dollar business. And in the process, he said, I'm going to become a wine expert. Well, I mean, he was on YouTube for five years before he had any kind of meaningful recognition. And so that's, that's I think, what he learned. So as he built VaynerMedia, which is, you know, a, a significant digital media agency and, and numerous other properties, he realizes the core of that is, is this communication of, of his craft, of what he's doing, and just showing people what it looks like for him to go through his day-to-day and the decisions he makes and the, the rules that he follows and the, the narratives that he comes back to over and over again. You said his message was consistent. I haven't heard anyone say that, but that's a really good way to put it, is that the approach is very consistent. It is very much about, you know, being true to yourself, working hard, pursuing your passion, showing kindness, empathy, and, and understanding for those around you, and that those things in combination over a long term are a winning combination. Those are things that are to contribute to your success in a very significant way. Mm-hmm. So that, that communication piece is kind of the, con- is the consistent part along the whole way. So wine can seem like a very unobtainable skill to learn about because you need to buy the bottle, you need to learn how to take tasting notes and all this stuff. But by him just being brash and saying, no, this sucks, or wow, this one's really good, come buy it, that made it accessible. And so the communication is the, the, the consistent piece between whether it's wine or now sports or, or hip hop or anything like that, it's, it's accessibility in the language and the communication style. And one thing that he's doing that I'm noticing a lot of other people who have a significant following are doing is opening up direct lines of communication to them through text messaging. I'd love to hear what successes are you seeing with that? And how is that a different channel than a, a tweet by, for example? Before I hop into that, let me just circle back on something you said around the communication piece is, key, is core to Gary's value proposition, is the ability to, he's one of the greatest communicators I've ever met. And one of the reasons that he is such an effective communicator, this comes back to our conversation around data, is he's like, well, I'm not a math guy. And what I say is like, you actually are a math guy, but you collect your data in different ways. And the way he collects his data is by reading comments. And he reads comments, thousands and thousands of comments, because that's what informs him about his audience. So he's not in Google Analytics, he's not looking at a spreadsheet, but he is processing more information about his audience than anyone else, because he is an advocate, you know, he is a adamant reader of the comments coming back from his community. And so I look at that when we talk about small data, we talk about how data uh, is important. That's, that's one that has really unlocked Gary and made him an even more effective communicator because he is so in touch with what his audience is talking about, thinking about, asking, upset about. So I just want to hit that part because that's a great example of what I would call small data. And regarding texting, I think texting is 
again, we, we talked about media being in between. And so texting is an opportunity for there to be a one-to-one -one communication as well as one-to-many -one communication. And you think about where the most meaningful communications happen now, they're not on phone calls anymore. And with the advent of a new language called emojis, it can be conveyed in a way that could never be conveyed before. Emojis seem like a silly little thing that's part of messaging, but in reality, it's building a new message that's built just for that platform. And so that's why it's really important for, for Gary to communicate with his audience in a means that's most convenient for them. That's, that's how they enjoy and, and prefer to communicate. And so that's why we feel like his text number is really going to be one of his primary means of communication going forward, even more so than some of the social platforms or his website. So mm -hmm. I would, I would advise if you want to check it out, I would suggest you, you text that number. It's 212-971-5731. I, I actually texted it about an hour and a half ago asking if he had any hard questions for me to ask you in our chat. Oh, did you? Yeah. Does he just get thousands and thousands of messages a day? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And so, you know, he will, you know, he will effort to, to connect with as many one-on-one -on -one as he possibly can, but you know, with thousands and thousands, he's, he's, he's never going to be able to do that with, with everyone, but he's sending out communications that are very, very, specific for that community and very and trying to give them access to him in a way that he's not providing on any other platforms. So I think that's, that's, we feel like that's a wave that he will be following very closely in the future that, and I think Gary's a very big believer in, in voice as well and how impactful voice is going to be in the future. Yeah. And, and one thing that you kind of touched, you, 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 touched on before we got on this call was YouTube stories, which I didn't even know existed until you mentioned them. Why do you think there is so much success in that less than 10 second long selfie cam means of, of sharing your message? I mean, I think there's two reasons that resonates with people. One is raw, raw means authentic in many cases, raw means organic, and there's nothing that people appreciate more or despise more when when someone's not authentic. And so when you show that rough, shaky video cam on your stories, someone feels like, oh, this is a legit you. You're, you're letting me in behind the scenes of something that's happening. And I think that's, that's one reason. I think the other is speed. You, you cannot underestimate how important speed is. Our communication methods have to speed up as well. So giving people the opportunity to consume information quickly, effectively and in an entertaining fashion is what people are looking for. It's what your audience wants. So, you know, watching a 30 minute sitcom is not, is not something that most people have time for anymore. They would prefer a 90 second video or even a seven second video. So stories play well in that, that area between authentic, real communication and delivery. At, at a speed with which people greatly appreciate. It also promotes the use of the platform because it leads to engagements. There's all these tools that you can ask people questions and they can reply and there's that, that small data collection, but it creates that, that attraction for a user to stay on that platform long-term because 
they can direct message their favorite celebrity and and the platform incentivizes creators to make stories because it puts them at the top of the bar and and they get skipped the line of all the other people who have posted that day now live videos are even more incentivized to go right before all the other stories and then i've even noticed now there's collaborative live stories where you can just get on instagram with another person and just immediately record a live video that seems like a really interesting tension between the platform trying to get people to stay on it as long as possible and then the and then the users wanting to have that connection with their favorite people yeah, i mean you touch you touch on a number of different things there the platforms itself you, you got to understand like their goal is always to reach and connect with more people in more meaningful ways and so when platforms like facebook or instagram or youtube release a new feature very often those get highlighted in a way that incents their use. So, you know, YouTube stories in particular, the, that is something that the company's pushing. So they're saying like, if you're using them, they're getting more exposure than other media because we want people to see these. You know, people who use YouTube stories consistently see an eight and a half percent increase in subscriber growth. So wow. that, that's not by accident, Stuart. Mm-hmm. That's by design, right? Because encouraging you to to do the to sample the parts of the platform that they want you to sample so when they're in that window of encouraging you it's an opportunity to capture you know underpriced attention and to get more exposure by utilizing some of these new methods and technologies that they're advancing the on the flip side though is you don't as a creator necessarily own that asset once it goes on the platform. So the story, as an example, is they're 20, they're, they last 24 hours and then they're gone. Yes, they're kind of in your profile, but they're not findable later in life. The same way that a search engine like Google indexes and allows people to find information regardless of when it was created. And so there are two different games. It's like there's, there's like current content that is just relevant to the time and doesn't need to be known about months later. But as a creator, you're putting a lot of effort towards doing these things. How should you be balancing digital assets that actually you own that you can have people tune into because they can always find it? Whereas an Instagram story might be really popular for the 12 minutes, but then it's impossible to show anyone ever again. Creating content that's temporary, that's, that's designed to relieve some of the pressure of trying to create the perfect piece of content. You know, it's eventually going to disappear. But the content you create and own is your library of content. And so the ability to host that on a number of different platforms, lots of advantage because you gain exposure, but you also play by those rules. So looking for opportunities where you can build an audience where you own the audience, you know, like a texting, like a texting community, that's where there's some significant opportunities if you can speak directly with your audience without a media middleman in between so you want to build those assets that you can own your audience provide them value and serve them because that's why you're doing in the first place and then you can have your pillar content that is represents your brand and aren't going anywhere and then you've got the temporary engagement that is kind of filling the cracks to to satisfy your audience need for constant engagement yeah you're creating you need to be creating content at as, as much scale as you can manage, depending on your resources and time. But 
when you do that, you have opportunities to create it in a number of different forms to serve a number of different platforms. But the key is really that you're developing for the platforms that reach your particular audience most effectively first, and then try to fill in as many of these other opportunities as you can. We're, we're just about out of time. So I've got one more question for you and it's going to be pretty, it might be difficult to answer because it's so un, unknown, but I'd love to hear you paint a picture of what you think this conversation might look like three years from now. Like what, what will media, <laughs> how will people be thinking about this kind of stuff three years from now? And to put that into context, three years ago in 2016, that's when Instagram introduced stories and they did the rebrand. And like, I was just, I was just Googling what happened in 2016. That's, that's how recently stories have been introduced on Instagram and it's drastically changed the landscape of, of how people interact. And I want to hear kind of what, where you see that, that going. I mean, I mean, a lot of this is really uh, repeating what Gary's uh, already talked about. And I think, I think the advent of voice is going to be really impact really big in the next three years because it just, it's easier when I can say what I want as opposed to type it. There's no, there's no comparison. There's no question. I would say it before I would type it. So voice I think is going to be really big. I think the ability for every person to think of themselves as a media property is going to grow. I think now everyone will have some sort of media presence that describes what they do or what they're passionate about. I think that the removal of the media from people and, the, and their audience will continue and there'll be different ways to connect with that audience that haven't been invented yet. So I'm mm. sure there's a platform or a technology that we have no idea of right now that will be very prominent three years from now. Yeah, absolutely. On that idea of creating your own media properties, I heard a really good analogy recently that Instagram is your new business card. It's a way of people to get in, get in touch with you. It's a p- way Absolutely. of staying relevant and showing people what you want to talk about when they contact you. And it's, a, it's your personal style. So people can know what to do when they, they get a hold of you. Absolutely, Stuart. Couldn't agree more. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. And if anyone listening wants to get a hold of Jim and see what he's all about, the best place to read some of his really awesome articles, which is how I originally found him, is on LinkedIn. So if you look up Jim Thompson on LinkedIn, you'll be able to find him there and say hi to him. That's amazing. Stuart, thank you so much for having me on. I I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you, Stuart. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, then you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to topofmind.substack.com and put in your email, you can get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content inspired by this show. So there's going to be candid audio recordings that aren't going to be available anywhere else, not on Spotify, not on Apple, nowhere else except on topofmind.substack.com. But that's not it. It's also a platform where I can share written content, videos, links, and anything else that I come across directly with you. You're going to get access to it right away. You're going to get access to the whole library of archived posts. And you're also going to be the first to be notified when a new episode of Top of Mind comes out. So head on over to topofmind.substack.com. See you there. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. 
If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.